All right, everybody, welcome back to the Short Story Long Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Derrickson, joined by my co-host, Andrew Dial. What's up, guys? And uh, tonight we've got just a kind of a banter back and forth. We're going to talk about a couple things. But uh, first off, I'd like to say thank you to everybody who is a listener and who's shared feedback. Uh, like we always say, give us a drop us a line on email at ask ask short story long at gmail.com. And uh, if you feel like you can Facebook message us too, that's fine. Uh, we did have a few guys reach out to us. Um, so I got a couple emails and some Facebook messages to read. The first one is from my coworker, Jake. He says, your content sucks ass. Sam talks way too much. That dozer dude seems cool though. So yeah, shout out. So <clears throat> might like, be onto something. Yeah. Like, like we said, um, we welcome all feedback. So Jake, go fuck yourself, but thanks <laughs> for the feedback. And then, uh, Brent Wallace, another one of my coworkers, he's a avid listener. So thanks Brent for being a listener. He says, thank you and Dozer for doing this podcast for not only yourself, but for all of the Effingham community. You two are true heroes. My last breath on my deathbed will be used to tell my grandchildren, listen to the short story long podcast, heart emoji, heart emoji, heart emoji. Also, please read this on the podcast. And uh, he told me at work that he forces his children to listen in the car. So thank you for that. And I'd like to shout them out as well. Carson Wallace, age 11, loves playing tackle football for Effingham Junior High in the sixth grade. Does not love deviled eggs. Carter Wallace, age 9, plays soccer, basketball, and will be on fifth grade tackle football this upcoming season. Also hates deviled eggs. Branson Wallace, age 4, has a curly fro like me. Goes to MKU here in town, which I don't know what MKU is. I'm guessing it's some kind of school. Anyway, loves Blippy. Who doesn't? And Ham Cracker Lunchables also hates deviled eggs. So I guess uh, that, you know, Brent is going to be the only person at his house eating the deviled eggs. But I did get a Snapchat from him last week that he eats, or he had he had made a whole dozen in deviled eggs. So did you get any messages this week, Dozer? Uh, I don't think I did, no. But I would like to uh, say that Brent Wallace is our weekly winner of a dozen eggs from the Dial family chicken flock. Oh, nice! I yes. didn't even get that. I didn't. I didn't even know we were giving eggs away. We weren't, but I appreciated the egg talk so much and his enthusiasm, and the fact that uh, we've obviously said some swear words in front of his kids on the internet. That uh, we probably better send out that dozen eggs. So uh, that's one thing I don't think we've talked about too much on this podcast is your your chicken farm situation, have we? No, that I, I suppose I suppose we could probably do a pretty lengthy episode on just getting the chicken coop to my house. So, to back it up, Dozer raises chickens at his house, and chickens produce eggs, and we all benefit from that by getting the eggs. Except so. for me, because I hate eggs. What? <laughs> no, I don't eat eggs. You don't eat eggs? Well, I, I eat eggs all the time and bake goods, like cakes and cookies. Okay, well, we, <laughs> we need to tell... Uh, you and Tony Reed need to get together because Tony's not an egg guy either. So no, I the chickens were a COVID project when we were at home. Okay, uh, during lockdown, and we got these chickens from Rural King, and we put them in the garage and it, we took an old entertainment center and cut the top off of it and turned it into a brooder box. 
So all these little baby chickens and man, little chickens grow quick. Okay. So within three weeks, we're we're like we're in trouble. Like we have maybe 12, 13, 14 chickens, and it was chicken math. Like the first couple died, and then we bought more, and we had this entertainment center converted to a brooder box, and we didn't know what we were gonna do. So my wife was like, oh, well, you, we can buy a chicken coop. You know, you could buy a portable building that they made into a chicken coop for like $1,500. Okay, $1,500, gotcha. And I was like, there's no way we're spending $1,500 on a chicken coop. Now that's cheap. For a COVID you know, project. Yeah, a couple of years later, you can't get anything for $1,500, but at the time. So she was looking at like sheds because a lot of people want to just get rid of their sheds. This is turning into a short story long. Mm -hmm. A lot of people want to get rid of their sheds. So they're for free all the time. You just got to find one decently close. Well, we couldn't really find anything for free. Well, then I put a post on Facebook. My buddy, Josh Stork, who is a listener. Shout out. He said, I've got one you can have. So I went and looked at it and I was like, I'll just pull it on a trailer and we'll drive home. Well, I did some math and the top of the shed would be into the power lines. It's like a 13 or 14 foot tall shed. You put it on top of a flatbed trailer, whatever the height was, it was over legal limit. So I made a trailer from a jet ski axle that I lengthened and we jacked this shed up. It's 12 by 13 foot and slid this trailer underneath. We jacked it up with high lift jacks. Okay. And slid this trailer underneath it, hooked it up to my three-quarter ton Dodge. I called one of my police officer friends and was like, how much am I going to go to jail for if I get caught doing this? <laughs> like, my mind's made up. Tell me the consequences. Yes. And he said, well, it's your lucky day. When COVID started, there was no police contact with the public unless it was a violent crime. So they're like, if they see you driving down the road, they're not even allowed to pull you over. Awesome. Sounds good. So we were going to do it on a Sunday morning because everybody knows you do the most sketchy, illegal stuff on the road on Sunday mornings. For sure. Well, I couldn't wait. My anxiety, dude, I was losing sleep. Like, I, I just had to get this thing home and get it over with. So me and my buddy Randy leave at leave T-Town at 5 o'clock in the morning on Friday morning and head, head towards my house, which is T-Town is east of Effingham, and I live west of Effingham. And it, it took like an hour and a half or so to go maybe 20 miles. We went around Effingham through the country, came through, and yeah, we towed this thing. And I was shocked. People would be out in their yard mowing or something. You drive by, they didn't even look at you. I mean, it was, I thought I was just such a freak show rolling down the road. I mean, I was 16 foot wide. And which is half again over the legal limit, maybe double the legal limit. I don't, I don't know. Eight and a half is is where you need a start to need a permit. Yeah, I was sixteen foot wide, so with the wheels and not, stuff. Not not quite double, but still. Yeah, and you were all I worked just, up for nothing. I just thought it was going to be this rolling freak show, and most people didn't even turn to look. So we got it home, and the funny thing about that is this soon as we put it on Facebook, what we did, I started getting people like, hey, I want you to move a shed. I've got a shed I need to move. And I was like, nope. Like, I already lost enough sleep over it. Like, my dad was pretty sure I was going to jail over the deal. He worries anyway. <laughs> he is a worrier. 
so I cut that trailer up and I, I probably had three or four people message me like, Hey, can I borrow your shed moving trailer? Like, sorry, already cut up. It's gone. Yeah. It's gone. So short story long, dozers into chickens, has an automatic sun powered chicken door. Um, He's, yeah. he's got the pretty legit setup. Yeah, we've got out a there. dry side and a uh, like a dirty side and a clean side, to where the chickens are on one side and like all the food and the bedding and stuff is on the other, where the chickens can't get to it. We've got like swing down boxes where you can open the back side of the the laying boxes to get the eggs. It's that's all my wife's doing. I thought it was so stupid. Then once we got them, like it's it's just entertainment. It's fun to watch them run around and eat bugs that they're like pigs like any of our old food and stuff we don't throw away we don't compost you throw it out to the chickens they'll eat anything but lettuce no lettuce huh they won't eat lettuce okay well that that's basically farmer farmer dozer here so transitioning into that we got another email from a good friend and customer of mine named zeth uh he's down from flat rock illinois so way down south there and he says salmon dozer okay Disclaimer, I already told Sam about this, but I was told I had to email the podcast so he could read it to you. If you got the horn for farming old school, I have some equipment that is 1970s vintage that you might be interested in. A 1973-ish TR-70 New Holland with corn head and bean platform that up until like two years ago, my grandfather was still using. It's been parked in the barn. It had... I had it out a few months ago to move stuff around in the shed, but it's here if you're interested. Let me know. There are some older vintage deer combines here as well, but they're probably back to the 60s. Sent from my iPhone. So shout out to Zeth. He's a listener. Um, He is living your dream, basically. So um, he'll probably email me and tell me I'm telling this story wrong, but his grandfather had the largest turkey farm in southern Illinois. Okay. And his grandfather's oh, passed yes, away. I remember you telling me about okay. this dude. So his grandfather's passed away and he was a diesel mechanic and now he's a farmer. And he has, I think as of today, another 20, I think maybe is either up to 40 or 60,000 birds Ooh. that he's got in his, in his barns. And he also raises white bass in his pond in cages. He actually bought a hedge trimmer attachment like Milwaukee pole saw, but instead of the pole saw, he put a hedge trimmer on it and he cuts the moss or something out of the the cages with the, with the pole saw, with the hedge trimmer. So anyway, he's got a pretty sweet operation. And, uh, I, I told him we need to come down there. He's got a fully stocked fridge and Wi-Fi. He said we can do the podcast from there someday. So, but yeah, he's a, he's a diesel mechanic turned farmer. So maybe a pin salesman can turn into a farmer if the cards play right. And that's what I love about America. You can do anything you want to if you put your mind that's to it. That's right. So that was our email section. What uh, What's new with you, Dozer? Well, let's start with what's new with you. Well, what's new with me? I've got 100,000 projects as usual. Um most recently, I've got the Grand Cherokee with the Hemi in it that has a uh, bad lifter with a flat cam. And uh, I purchased a motor for that a few, about two months ago now, and supposedly was good to go, ready to rock and roll. And I wanted to verify all the stuff the guy told me was true. So in order to check the lifters, you have to pull the heads off. Pulled the heads off and two of the cylinders were full of rust, had some water standing in them. I'm guessing this motor spent some time outside. 
I'm going to attempt to salvage it. I got most of the scale off. The cylinder wall feels smooth, but there's still some discoloration. But uh, that's the most recent project I got going on. But uh, So if anybody needs a freshly rebuilt Hemi, reach out to Samuel. He's got one. Yeah, freshly rebuilt. That goes back to your, uh, your 351 that you bought that was quote-unquote freshly rebuilt. But, uh, yeah, so before that, though, we had a trip planned to Fort Myers, Florida to go see one of my girlfriend's friends that had moved down there. She had been down there for about a year, and we haven't seen her, and thought, you know, we need to just have a weekend, and we'll go down and hang out and, uh, you know, just have a good time in Florida. And so we booked everything, and we had everything planned out and decided to fly... Allegiant because they fly direct nonstop from Belleville to Fort Myers, Florida. Everything was going great. And then Hurricane Ian decided they was going to wipe Fort Myers off the map, essentially. And uh, so that kind of put a wrench in those plans. So we decided, well, we'll just cancel. Well, with Allegiant, that's not really an option. Uh, they'll let you cancel, but they'll keep more than half of your money. So the option would have been to fly somewhere else. There's a bunch of destinations in Florida, Savannah, Georgia, Phoenix, Arizona, or Las Vegas. I decided to go to Las Vegas because it was my girlfriend's birthday at the end of the month in October and said, you know what, that'd be fun. I've never been. She's been before. And we decided to go there. And the only bad thing I have to say about the whole experience was flying Allegiant. Driving to Belleville Airport, not a lot of fun. Driving home, just as much of a dismal experience. But Vegas was awesome. So, Dozer, you've been to Vegas, right? Yes. We used to go every year for the Promotional Products Expo, which is giant. I don't know how it compares to other expos, but supposedly I had heard through the grapevine that there's 14 miles of vendor booths. And we would go out there to see what's new and exciting in the promotional product world. Find new ideas for customers. Usually we found one or two things that made the trip worth it every year. We went in 2020, right as COVID was kicking off. That was at the end of January. You know, about middle of February, stuff started heating up. And I think they closed it down the next year. And it's just never been the same since. We have not been back out there, but we are going to go this year in January. So my my Vegas experience is mostly work. I go with my dad, so there's not much excitement. You, you know, dad, I've been going there since 2000, whew, 2010, 2011. And my dad's been going there since before that. I don't know. So, you know, every year it's just business. We don't really do anything. It's not really that much fun. People oh, have fun on your vacation. Like, no, no. It's, we go and walk miles every day. And by the end of the day, you're, I used to wear wingtips, you know, because you dress up to these shows, to look like professional and concrete floors and you'd just be hurting by the end of the day. I started wearing tennis shoes just because you know, for self, self-preservation, you know, and 
but we never, I don't think we went to any shows or anything, basically going out to eat and then go play some blackjack and go to sleep. So that's my experience. I do know one of the first years we went out there, we were walking around on the streets and that was back when they could sell hookers, like out in the open. Maybe they still do, I don't know, but it was like big, like they wore t-shirts and the t-shirt said, girls to your room in under 20 minutes. Okay. And we had been walking, you know, for 45 minutes from our hotel room at this point. And I, uh, I either told dad or one of the guys that said, uh, I said, girls to your room in 20 minutes. Heck, we can't even be to our room in 20 minutes. And it's just become this joke. My dad like tells everybody he who told, will listen to it. He you know? told he told me before I left about that well, I can't even be in my own room in twenty minutes. So I didn't see any hookers out there. There was just short Mexicans handing out like little business cards. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, the worst thing was just like the whatever the showgirls or whatever with the big fancy hats, yes. and they were just walking around with their butt cheeks out. And trying to get you to take a picture of them, and then I guess pay them for the picture. But yeah. we just we just walked on past them, so we didn't we didn't go out with any plans at all. We stayed at the uh, the Silverton Casino, which is south of the Strip. Um, if I'd have to do it over, I would stay on the Strip, even though it was more money. I saved about six hundred bucks on the hotel room by going away from the Strip, but we made that up almost half that much in Uber rides back and forth. But neither here nor there. It was. The nicest thing about it was it was quiet. I mean, you go back to your room at nine, ten o'clock at night. You go right to sleep. No one's partying and carrying on the hallways. So um, they had a a Bass Pro Shops in their casino, and outside of the Bass Pro Shops was the Orange County Choppers Bass Pro Shops Chopper. Okay, and they had like TVs showing the build. It was really cool. Outside of that was like a uh, underwater themed restaurant with a mermaid in a fish tank flying, uh, floating around, swimming around with the fishes. Um, then they had a couple other restaurants and stuff. We didn't do any gambling. We decided that, I mean, it doesn't do anything for me. I've, I've gambled before, you know, the, the video machines here in town. And then for a work trip, I think I went to a casino and they gave us $50 on a player's card and I, used it and it literally didn't even change my heartbeat. I just wasn't into it. Didn't do anything for me, but they said you can't go to Vegas and not gamble. So we both put a dollar in one of the penny slot machines, which turns out the least amount of bet you can put in a penny slot is like 58 cents. So explain to me how that works. But, um, so I, I spun once lost, put another dollar in lost again. I left like 32 cents in the machine she lost her first spin, left like 18 cents in the machine. Well, that's all right. We gambled in Vegas. Let's let's move on. So we only went through the casinos like during the day. So there was really mm-hmm. no like roulette tables open. There was just really blackjack. It was really only table games. But it was still a cool experience. I mean, there's something for everybody in that city. So we went to at everyone's suggestion. We didn't go to any shows um, just because we didn't have anything planned. Like I said, we just woke up in the morning, Googled some stuff to do, and just did it. So... Um, probably the coolest thing was we went to the mob museum. Have you heard of it? I have not. No. So the mob museum is basically from the late 1800s through present day describing how organized crime influences society. Okay. And they have, you know, videos and artifacts like where the St. Valentine's day massacre happened in Chicago was against a brick wall outside of business and they dismantled the brick wall and it was on tour for like a circus or something for a bunch of years. And then when that guy passed away, um, another organization 
bought the bricks and they're all numbered one by one and they rebuilt the actual wall that the massacre took place against and they had like the actual bullet fragments that was you know fbi uh the evidence and everything and underground of there they had a speakeasy that you could like knock on the door say a password and they let you in they have all these overpriced vintage drinks that you can try and it was just overall a really cool experience they talked about how the organized crime played a huge role in the building of Las Vegas because, you know, during prohibition, the organized crime made a huge killing off of selling illegal alcohol. Well, once alcohol became legal again, um, then they, they started the illegal gambling. Well then Nevada made gambling legal. And so everyone was flocking to Nevada. So they basically capitalized and basically made everything that was illegal and lucrative, legal and also lucrative. So, um, it was just pretty cool. Um, I'm a big history guy and I, I just kind of get off on that kind of thing, but we went there. Go ahead. That reminds me of now that Lake Mead is drying up. They're finding all those bodies and stuff. Oh, organized crime. They're just like everywhere. People in 55 gallon barrels. Oh yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty crazy. Um, then my second favorite part about it was Fremont experience. So, I am, I'm not a big crowd person. I was kind of worried about crowds, but it it wasn't that bad at all. It was pretty laid back, relaxed. There was live bands. I mean, anyone who's ever been to Vegas has to go to Fremont. And that's like the number one thing everyone does. They got the big lights over the street and everything. And they got all these circles painted on the ground that either homeless people or street performers or whoever, like they're confined to this circle, but they can do stupid stuff and get paid for it. So there was, you know, all your typical stuff, like people making roses out of uh, palm fronds. And like my favorite was this guy. He had a, uh, a sign that said, just looking. And just kind of kind of stood there looking homeless with a sign on his chest that said, just looking. And then like underneath it, it hinged down another sign that said, at butts. And then another sign below that that said, and boobs. And that cracked me up. And then another guy that said, tip me if your girl is hot. And just all this crazy stuff. But like I said, live music and everything. That was just a cool experience just to see all people from all walks of life and everything. And then I, as a salesperson being sold to, you know, mm-hmm. people try to sell you right. anything and everything while you're there. There was a guy, I've seen videos. I don't know if this guy, probably not, but people who do like crazy street art with spray paint. Like they can make a whole portrait in under five minutes just with spray paint, you know? Mm -hmm. And there was a guy doing that live. He just had a little booth set up and he was doing all these little spray paint paintings and he was selling them for $50 a piece and probably making a freaking killing. Um, So that was cool. We went to a couple other little things here and there just to see. We went to the Hogs and Heifers bar, um, probably the most at home I had felt in all of Vegas, like everything in Vegas is so over the top and just flamboyant and crazy. Um, you know, everything's big and bright and loud and flashy. Well, this bar is, I guess it's world famous. I'm sure it is, but it's like a biker bar and it's just off of Fremont street and you go in there and the girls are kind of scantily clad, kind of like a Hooters type of vibe, but they yell at you and they, you know, they make fun of you and call you a pussy or whatever. And, um, it's cash only bar. It's like, just like being in T town, can't do anything but cash. And, yeah. and, uh, just the, 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 the vibe that you get just from a, being a dive bar. Mm-hmm. Um, 
is like the only thing in Vegas that's not like super polished and fancy and tourist trappy, you know. So that was really cool. Um, and then I, uh, we went to the Hollywood Cars Museum. That was kind of a dated little exhibit, but it was all this old car, like a, a Bond, the Bond Lotus that was a submarine. You remember that? I don't remember what, I know, what I'm, movie I'm it was from. I'm not a but big James Bond consumer. Anyway, there was a submarine made out of a Lotus whatever car, and there was two, three, or whatever that they built, and one of them they found in a junkyard in the Bahamas. And this guy restored it, and it's like the actual one of the yeah. actual props that they had. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And like there was a couple Fast and Furious cars, and the uh, um, uh, they had a whole Liberace exhibit with all the sparkly cars that he had and stuff. But my favorite thing to do on accident is like drag my girlfriend to shit that she hates. And she went with me to the Atomic Testing Museum. Have you heard of it? I have not. No. So it's way off the strip. And so pro tip, <clears throat> if you see something that's more than like a thousand foot away from your location on your phone, get an Uber because you think, oh, that's only three quarters of a mile. That's I can just walk that. Well, mm -hmm. something about a Nevada mile is different than a regular yeah. mile because it, it was it was lit, like in all fairness, it was 1.2 miles away. It took us like an hour to walk there. And I kept saying, like, we'll get an Uber. Well, we should have just got an Uber. Anyway, I, again, history guy. I love history. And it was basically all about how, like, Area 51 is out in Nevada, out that way, and how all of the nuclear testing they did back in the late 40s, early 50s, into 60s was all done in Nevada just out in the desert. And they were talking about all the different things that went into that, and it was just super uninteresting to her. She was a trooper. She didn't complain once, but I was just going through reading all the stuff and everything. And I was hoping to read a story that I had read on the internet at one point in time. And they didn't really ever talk about it, but it was just pretty cool to see how the nuclear testing had progressed from before the bombs were dropped on Japan till like how we were thrust into a nuclear age and how like nuclear energy and the peaceful applications of the nuclear process were going to make us a prosperous country. And they didn't ever really have a good explanation as to why we never followed through. Um, that's probably a political discussion mm -hmm. that we won't even have on this podcast, but basically, you know, back in the fifties, they, everything was nuclear. Everything from kids toys were talking about having like a nuclear powered, um, you know, little rocket car for your kid to play with. Like every, everything was about nukes and how nukes were going to had a nuclear powered, like concept car at they? one point. Yeah. But I'm, I just mean like everything was, you know, propaganda or, or like culturally centered around, you know, nuclear energy and everything and, and how the atom was going to, you know, revolutionize everyday life. And if you have ever talked to me about the, you know, energy, argument i'm a huge proponent of nuclear energy and it was just kind of cool to tie that in but the story that i was hoping to read and never did read was about uh a manhole cover i've told you this story yeah, before. i think you had I, so, I was thinking this already so but. i've got a wiki link up here so i'm not gonna cite it just in case you don't want to go fight on your own but um an excerpt from this was about a guy named brownlee he designed the Pascala test, the first at first designed to contain a nuclear fallout, the bomb was placed at the bottom of a hollow column 
three feet wide and 485 feet deep with a four inch thick cast iron top. Um, the test was conducted on the night of July 26, 1957. So the explosion coming out of the column looked like a Roman candle. Brownlee said the iron cap in the test exploded off the top of the tube like a bat. He wanted to measure how fast it came off of the column, so he designed a second experiment, the Pascal B. Brownlee replicated the first experiment, but the column was a little bit deeper at 500 feet, and they recorded the experiment with a camera that shot one frame, one frame per millisecond. On August 27, 57, the manhole cover cap flew off the column with the force of the nuclear explosion. The iron cover was only partially visible in one frame. Uh, with this information, he deduced how fast the cap was going. He calculated that it was traveling at five times the escape velocity of Earth, or about 125,000 miles per hour, which dwarfs the 36,000 mile per hour speed that the New Horizon spacecraft, which is people are saying is the fastest object launched into space ever by humankind. Um, so what, what always, uh, what always struck me about the story is the first experiment. They're like, wonder where it landed. Like it had to land somewhere. We, it's like, you know, if you put a, a pot on top of a room or a, a M80, like it, it goes up and it lands. Like, I wonder where it landed. Hope it didn't land on anybody's head. And after the second test, like we launched that bitch to freaking Pluto. Yes. Like my favorite part of that story is like how there's so many restrictions these days. But back in the 50s, it was the Wild West. And and we can tie this back into cars. Like you talk about top fuel, like anybody could just go buy nitromethane and throw it on an engine in a front engine dragster and just go tear shit up. And, and no one was even telling them they couldn't. And it was just like everyday people with half ton or three quarter ton pickup trucks. No, no, they use station wagons. Yes. Okay. Cars. So, so anyway, like back in the fifties, it like, let's, let's see if we can contain this explosion by putting a lid on this pressure cooker. Nope. Didn't work. Like, Hmm. Wonder what happened. Like, screw it. Try it again. And they they just did the same test again. Like, Oh shit. Yes. (laughs) I, I, it, it I went just went into orbit. It. Yeah. Didn't no, no, it did not go into orbit. It went out of the solar system. Right. That was 70 years ago. I'm sure that bitch is in another galaxy by now. So, yeah, pretty pretty freaking impressive. But, yeah, it just, that that kind of stuff really intrigues me, like the science history type stuff, and she was just having none of it. But other than that, the trip was really, really good. Um, we didn't do anything too crazy. Um, had a lot of real, I mean, just really expensive drinks and really expensive meals, but yeah, was, was finding an Uber easy. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up. Cause I, I had actually blocked this out of my mind. So in everywhere I've ever been, um, you know, you Uber or ride share to get somewhere and you just look at your little phone and it says, here's where you're at. Here's where the pickup spot is, you know, walk 10 feet and you're there, you know? which is no problem anywhere in the world except for the Las Vegas Strip. So on the Las Vegas Strip, and and it makes sense. After I've talked to a few people, they don't want Ubers pulling over and blocking traffic and screwing everything up. So what's difficult is, like, we're watching the Bellagio Fountain, and it's cool. Like, all right, we're ready. It's, you know, it's 10 o'clock at night. We've been up since 7 a.m. We're ready to go home, ready to go back to bed, whatever. 
So grab an Uber. Well, the it snaps the location to all these Uber pickup points at all these hotels, which my you know first instinct was like, well, let me just walk 10 foot away and maybe it'll let me pick up somewhere else. Nope, you cannot get an Uber on the strip. So I, I picked the Bellagio pickup location and it took me probably 20 minutes to find it. And it's, it's not like, you could have had a hooker to your room by then. <laughs> it's, it's not easy to find. So it's like, it's down in the parking garage and there's like one little sign that's like six inches by 10 inches. that says, you know, just the Uber logo with an arrow, like in this general direction somewhere is Uber as well. There's also limousines and taxis and everything else. And when I finally got in the Uber, the guy told me that the doorman at all these casinos hate Ubers. Like they, they, they prefer taxis. Taxis and limos, and I'm guessing it has to do with the tipping or whatever, right. or maybe maybe they're in cahoots, like there's a kickback to the taxi company for getting rides out of this hotel. I don't know, but he's like, if I go, because I, I was like, I, I was messaging him on, on Uber, like, hey, can you just come to this little spot where I'm at? He said, no, I can't go there. He'll kick me out. Like, if if the guy sees an Uber, he'll, he'll tell him he can't stop there, has to leave or whatever. So my best advice is walk a block off the freaking main strip where you can get an uber but in and, and maybe i'm just not experienced enough at vegas but like you just i guess you would need to know where the uber spots are at at all these hotels because they're not easy to find none of them are and it's it's just frustrating as hell because you can't you know the uber will be there in five minutes well it takes 15 minutes to walk through the maze of freaking you know parking garages and and lobbies and shit to get to the uber pickup spot and then I don't know. It's just, it's just ridiculous. And my experience with that is back before Uber was even a thing, when we would go out to Vegas, one of my coworkers loved eating at Outback Steakhouse. Okay. And there was an Outback Steakhouse on the strip. So my rule, and I don't know if you agree with this or not, is when you're on vacation, you don't eat anything you got at home. Like, nope, McDonald's, nope, Popeye's, nope. It's got to be something out there. But anyway, right, apparently Outback Steakhouse was, you know, it out in, there enough. It fell on the list. Okay. So we got a, we had walked to it before and you could get to it from the strip. Well, we decided we want to take a, a, a taxi. So we get a taxi at the hotel, say we want to go to the Outback Steakhouse on, on the strip. So they take us through all these dark alleys, this back way, you know, and they stop and said, here you are. And there's just this door. And it's not marked, not labeled, nothing. It's just like a big brown door. Super sketchy. Yeah, super sketchy in this alley. Nobody around, like no lights on hardly. And we're like, yep, this is where we get killed, you know? Yeah. And they're like, is that, is it in there? Yep, yep. And so why can't you just bring us the front? No taxis allowed, you know, on the strip. This is where we have to drop you off. So we end up going through this door, you know, walking through this casino and is, is, took us 15 minutes to even find the restaurant. You know, we had to go up a flight of stairs and ended up coming in like the back door of the restaurant. Walking through the kitchen. Yeah, it was weird, dude. And anyway, after we got used to it, just every year we did the same thing, you know, walk in the back door of this kitchen and then they'd bring us up to the front and I guess this how it's done. Apparently it's a thing. So you talked about the cab companies getting kickbacks. One year we had this super cool guy as a cab driver, he had a minivan. Okay. And we're, you know, you always make small talk with him. And he said, yeah, I, I make a lot of money driving a cab, but it's not from driving a cab. 
He uh-huh. said that the the brothels give cab drivers kickbacks oh. because people will get in. You know, like a bachelor party, like you know, bring us bring us to a brothel, and you know they really don't know where or what the best is. So actually, they get a the, portion. The cab the- driver takes the money for the deed. It keeps a percentage and pays the pays the. The, the brothel. Damn. Yeah. And he said he made way more money doing that than he did driving a cab. Like, the cab was just kind of a means to an end, you know? Yeah, it's his foot in the door. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's how he finds his clients. That's pretty cool. Didn't know so, that. It was he was almost like a like a middleman. Like he was like he bought He's a broker. He yeah, he he bought the whole set he he bought the the time with the ladies <laughs> wholesale and sold it retail to like bachelor parties and stuff. That's, that's actually pretty smart. That's pretty smart. One thing I'll say is they, they know how to move people in Las Vegas, as far as like just traffic flow for the sheer amount of people that are there, it is actually pretty smooth other than actually finding where you need to go. The actual movement of people is extremely efficient. I mean, they've been doing it for how many years they've, they've got it figured out, but like at the, at the airport, there's a, there's a Uber line and a taxi line. And this taxi line's got like a thousand people in it when we first get there. And in less than 10 minutes, we're in a cab headed to our hotel. Right. Um, Did you and, notice like on the cab, there's a fee right away. Mm-hmm. And they said that they have to pay a tax every time they pick up at the airport. Yeah. Which uh, I don't, I'm sure there's probably a million websites on like hacks for Vegas, but I was told by the Uber drivers that the only time that a taxi is cheaper than an Uber in Las Vegas is to go from the airport to your hotel. And the reason is, is there's no, like, there's no screwing it up, basically. And he says, like, if you take a a taxi from, like, the Bellagio to, I don't even know, like, another hotel or, or like, the, the, the Ma Museum downtown or whatever... They will take every like twist and turn and screwed up way to get there so they can add time to your fare. Whereas like an Uber, it's a set price. You got the fare and then a tip and that's it. I mean, it doesn't matter how many shortcuts or loopholes or whatever they, they do or don't take. They get paid the same. So they're the most efficient at getting you from A to B. So, I mean, that made sense to me. But the, the biggest disappointment of the whole weekend is I came home the day they were setting up for SEMA. So now I would like really, really like to go back to SEMA next year to Vegas, just because I would know a little bit better where, what I was doing or where I was going. So yeah, they, they always have the shot show out there when we're out there for the promotional product show. Okay. You know, you see all these guys with camouflage and, leather bags and stuff it's like oh man i wish i wish i was going to the shot show not looking at pins i've never been but i've seen you know plenty of pictures and it's i mean it's the the mecca of gun shows for anybody who's a gun guy to go to the shot show and that's where they release all their news i mean that's anything and i mean vegas one guy was telling me it was like basically the convention capital of the whole world like if you're gonna have a convention that's where you have it. Unless you're Snap-on, then you don't ever go. I'm guessing it has a lot. They, they used to go there before. They used to call it like, I don't know, whatever they called it. But now it's called the Snap-on Franchisee Conference. But whatever it was called before that, like the dealer show, it used to be in Vegas. 
and the old timers will tell you stories about going to Vegas. Well, now they don't do it. And I think it's a combination of there's no Gaylord in Vegas, which is who Snap-on's in bed with for events. And I'm guessing there was probably a participation problem with the franchisees. They were spending more time gambling or screwing around than they were actually going and actually doing the show, you know. And actually, when we first started going out to Vegas, the show opened at 9, and the city made them push it back to 10 because people were going to bed too early oh. to get to the show. So you go out there, and the show does not even open till 10 o'clock. That's interesting. That's very interesting. Then one cab driver was telling me, like I was you know, mentioning the Mob Museum and how, like, how organized crime used to influence politics and everything. And he was basically like, they still do. It's just not the mafia anymore. It's, it's you know, he, got, politicians. he, he got pretty, you know, uh, political about it and uh, slightly anti-Semitic about it. But, okay. uh, <laughs> but he was explaining how uh, with the COVID lockdowns that the casino owners, law-abiding citizens, but we're still, you know, influential in politics because I would venture to guess that one little three mile section of road in Nevada pays 10 times what that state needs to run in taxes. And, you know, if you're a governor and 10 of the, you know, 10 of the casino owners get together and they tell you like, this is what we want done you're probably going to listen to him because otherwise you probably won't be in there next year. And, and his description was with the uh, mask mandates. Um, the governor of Nevada was like, I'm going to keep him in place, blah, 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 which uh, according to the law is actually not their power, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, the casino owners were like, no, you're going to go ahead and lift the mask mandates. And he's like, no, no, I'm, I'm going to keep you know safety. And he's, they're like, if you want to be elected next year, uh, you're going to lift the mask mandate. So consequently, you don't have to wear a mask in Las Vegas. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, not surprising at all. So anyway, enough about Las Vegas. Let's yeah, that talk- was definitely a short story long. So let's talk about what you did this weekend. Well, as I talked on previous podcasts, I was getting my Jeep ready for a trip to Winrock, which is the largest privately owned off-highway vehicle park in the United States. Which is amazing. If you've ever had the chance to go, highly recommend it. Yes, it is 73,000 acres, which is hard for someone in Illinois to even wrap their head around. How big that is. How yeah. big that is. It's three. It spans three counties. And it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing. It's crazy. And it's just one of the parks that you can go to on the same mountain. Yes, yes, there's other ones. It's it's like being on a different planet compared to Illinois. It's we in Razors go there every chance we get because around here you don't really get that much terrain to go play on. I mean, the closest thing we have is Badlands and it's just an old sand mine. And actually, we were filling up with gas the second day and there was a dude in a TJ, which was a Wrangler, and he was like, Illinois, what are you doing here from Illinois? I said, we're, we're off-roading. You come all the way to Tennessee to off-road? 
I said, dude, we don't have any off-roading like this anywhere close to us. The people down there don't know how good they got it. No. no not even a clue. And actually, my cousin Greg had a similar conversation with the guy at O'Reilly's when we were down there. He's like, why do, he's like he, he, my cousin's from Ohio. He said, why do all these people from Ohio come down here? And he's just like, that's, that's just, you know, the, it's just so much. The wheeling is so good down here compared to back home. It's, it's not like anything that you have available to us anywhere near here but they to them like they grew up doing it like you don't have seventy three thousand acres in your backyard to off-road in anytime you want yeah and uh i'm it's it's pretty incredible and it's and it's been going like that for years and i'm saying all the way back into the 70s um which i don't know how much trivia you have about windrock but there's a lot of gas and oil that's produced on the mountain or within the mountain and I mean, they, they built these roads to service the coal mines and the oil wells. And over 50, 60 years, the roads just go to shit and turn into off-highway vehicle trails. So um, some of the old timers that are down there will share stories with us about, you know, back in the day, we used to ride our three-wheelers up here and get lost up in the woods. And, you know, it's it's just been a spot for decades that, people would frequent so yeah and i couldn't really find when it actually became an ohv park okay from my research late 80s early 90s is when it officially became a thing okay but i'm sure people were like you said were, uh, been up there messing around for a hundred years mm-hmm. but we we got my jeep done or done as it was going to get we loaded up me and jason drove down there uh, with our jeeps and met my cousin and my uncle my uncle's from southern indiana and my cousin's from ohio met him down there stayed at a friend's cabin and this is the third time i had been down there and finally after three times kind of getting the lay of the land a little bit but is we went in march well we went i went with sam and cody two years ago yeah two years ago in September, and we did in one day did like a hundred miles of riding, which in we would like to have uh, Cody on, and as well as Randy Dazabrock. And one of the biggest factors in me transitioning from doing off road activity from a Jeep to a side by side is the amount of ground you can cover comfortably in a side-by-side versus a Jeep. So when we go down there in side-by-sides, the Jeep guys are in our way. We're mad at them, you know, let us pass or whatever. Cause we're going to put a hundred, 150, 200 miles on in a weekend. Whereas the Jeep guys, how, how many miles do you think you put on this weekend? So in March we did 92 miles in two days. Okay. And uh, that's that in the in, Jeeps. That's in Jeeps. That included driving road down to the general store okay. to wheel down there. And then this trip, I did probably closer to 70 miles, but the the first day my cooling fan quit on me and I lost basically half the first day limping back to the cabin to put a new cooling fan on it. Right. So it was funny. This Jeep is a very, very new to me Jeep. It's been off-roaded and abused. Uh you know, for years now, actually 
sidebar, the guy I bought it off of ended up passing away last week or two weeks ago. Last week. Uh, I had heard a rumor he took his own life, but I cannot confirm or deny that. And on the Evansville Jeepers page, they had like a memorial post, like post your pictures of this guy in, in remembrance. And the amount of pictures I seen of my Jeep up to the headlights and mud mm-hmm. really explains the condition it's in. Okay. Yep. Uh, but anyway, it, it had an angry eye grill on it. Of Why didn't it? Of and course it did. I took it off because that's not my thing at all. And put a regular grill on it, thanks to Samuel. That's a whole nother story. But I put on there, I said, hey, if anybody wants this grill, let me know. Because I'm just going to throw it away. And if it would mean something to somebody, you can have it. Okay, I didn't know and, you did this. Yeah. So somebody reached out to me and said, we want the grill. Uh, can you bring it to the funeral on Sunday? I said, well, you know, I live two and a half hours away. I am going to be passing through the Evans. He's from Evansville. The Evansville area going to Winrock. Uh, you know, I can meet, if, if you'll meet me by the interstate, you can have it. I'm not going out of my way that right, much. Right, yeah. So they arranged for me to, they, I met them Thursday at a, at a McDonald's and gave it to the lady. I guess he was her godfather or something and she was real emotional about it. And That's pretty cool. I'm yeah, glad you did that. I had I, no idea. I had a hard time not telling him what I thought about the guy because <laughs> the, the Jeep was in pretty rough shape. As Compared, the last episode yeah. would suggest. And Jason actually asked me, he goes, do you, do you regret doing that episode after what happened? I said, not at all. Nope. I mean, it, it is what it is. We, we had actually discussed about not releasing the episode, but at the end of the day, it, it is what it is. It's, it's tragic. You know, yeah, I don't want anybody to die by suicide, but, you know, that, that doesn't change the fact that he had some questionable judgment calls on this Jeep. And I don't think in the podcast we were too terribly harsh on him. No. I mean, you were harder on the guy that sold you the black Mustang than you were the guy that sold you the Jeep. So, um, but no, yeah, Steve Brown, screw you. So, uh, so to the Jeep guy, you know, rest easy, brother. Um, thanks for being a, a a Jeeper and getting Dozer back into the Jeep game. Pretty heavy. Well, I had a Jeep, but anyway, that's, I just, if it meant something to somebody, they, they kind of wanted me to bring the Jeep to the funeral, and I wasn't really going to do that just because it wasn't going to work out the schedule. So far out of the I, way. I didn't really even know the guy. I wasn't really a big fan of him at that point. But you can have the grill if you you know meet me by the interstate. So it all worked out, and I, I figured it was big a, a big karma investment. Sure. Yep, for sure. Uh, so back to Winrock. Um, it's, it's pretty cool. It's pretty incredible. So... My couple of my favorite things about Winrock is going to see waterfalls. There's just, I mean, there's there's spring water coming out of the mountain, and there's waterfalls all, and you're just driving down the trail and just look over to your left, and there's just this giant, beautiful waterfall. I seen you guys found one on one of the trails and took some yeah, pictures. Yeah, that's on by. 52. I I have a picture uh, next to that waterfall every year. I've been there every mm-hmm. time. But, so, but. Back to my story before Get, I was so rudely interrupted. I interrupted <laughs> yeah, you. I wasn't oh. done yet. I was transitioning back into us talking about how abused this Jeep was. Okay. All right. So I had never really off-roaded. I did my yard a little bit, but never even had this thing in low hardly. So I get up to the 
get up to the entrance of the park, pull the four-wheel drive lever, nothing. Oh, lever's completely lever's completely disconnected from the transfer case. Thus, I put a new bushing on it, whatever, not a problem. It's happened before. Well, when it happened before, there was no skid plates or drive shaft, front drive shaft in it. Oh, so no. it was all hot underneath there. Just I ended up just covering my hand with my hoodie and just reaching up there. I got it connected, put it in four-wheel drive. Cool. So get going up the trail. Ding, 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 ding. It just keeps dinging. I'm like, why is this thing dinging? I look down, the oil pressure light, there's no gauge, but the oil pressure light is dinging. Oh, I'm fantastic. Like, this is not good at all, you know? So I realized it would only ding when you hit a bump. So I kind of concluded that that's probably a wiring issue. And, and uh, yeah, I'd, I'd say that's probably pretty later, close. Later research confirms that like the wires to that sensor are get chafed all the time. It's probably ca- connecting to ground because if it sat still, totally fine. Even when it was super hot from overheating, it never happened. But if you're moving and you hit a bump, but anyway, irregardless. So I'm kind of freaking out over that super new Jeep, you know, heading up into the abyss of 73,000 acres. Which, and, which that's one of the main factors there because at, you know, one of our local parks, you break down, you can drive your truck and trailer within a few hundred yards of where you're broke down at. That's not an option at Windrock. I mean, if you're broke down in the wrong spot, there's people that just leave their shit on the trail because it's that bad. Right. And, and I think Cody Willenberg has gone on a few rescue missions like side-by-sides that have rolled or broken something so far away with no spare parts that it's just it's it's just impossible and i i I don't quote me on this but i think there's a guy that's got a helicopter that for a few thousand dollars will come get your shit yeah and there's there's a uh company that does recoveries Mm -hmm. maybe a few companies yeah and they said like if if you break you stay with it because if you leave it They'll rob the, the, all the your hill, shit. The hill people will find it, and yeah. it'll be just a bare frame by the time you get there. Because this place is twenty four hours. There's no, there's no cutoff time. You can wheel all night long, and uh, it's. No, I mean, I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to. Like, it's it's not a sketchy area, but you get a sketchy feeling. I've never met anybody while I was down there that I was a little bit leery of. But that didn't stop me from being a little scared, you know, because there's these trails there you're in the confines of the park, but there's trails that lead in and out of the park and you don't know where they go. They're not marked. They're not on maps and you're just following a trail and all of a sudden you're in, you, there's someone's backyard and you know, you, you think you, you don't want to think the worst, but there, there's times where we've been yeah, like, if you uh, look at them, there's 13 old trucks, yeah. you know, and and an old cement mixer and all the trash from their whole life is in the front yard and you're you know the porch is half fallen off the house you're like oh, i probably don't need to be here in the dark yeah and usually when you're in those situations you're desperate because you're lost or you're broke out of fuel out of fuel you're not taking the regular way back you you're just looking for any way out of this place and you just roll up on a deliverance movie in the middle of the night so, so. i actually Sam carries a gun when he no, goes. I don't. Oh, no, 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 no. I have one that I've considered taking, but I've never been in a situation where I thought, 
I would like to have my gun right now. I actually bought one for the express purpose of like getting muddy and rained on and stuff. And I was going to buy a like center console type gun carrier, but I was reading up on some of the laws and the cost benefit analysis that I did in my head. It wasn't worth the potential trouble for whatever, you know, little bit of safety I would feel for having it. The only, the only time I could see really needing one is in a situation with a bear. And the only time I've ever seen a bear there, it was a black bear and it was more scared of me than I was of it. And there was like, I think six or seven of them in the middle of the trail, two ran up the hill, two ran down the trail and two ran down the hill. And I'm pretty sure the two that ran down the hill felt it the next morning because it was pretty freaking steep. So, well, me and Greg carry guns, but we both have concealed carry permits. I don't know if that changes things in Tennessee. Or it not. does. It does. <clears throat> But I don't but have one. I, I told Jason, I, I was like, what gun did you bring? Knowing damn well he didn't bring a gun. Right. He was just like, uh, what do you mean? I was like, we're going out in the middle of Hillbillyville here. Yeah. And anyway, so yeah, we... It's, it's been considered at length, uh, but without the proper permits and everything, it's not worth it to me to end up with either, I mean, at the very least, a ticket or worst in jail or even worse, dead. I mean, I this might be terrible to say, but... In, in my youth, in my younger years, you know, I used to carry a gun with me everywhere thinking I'm a badass or whatever. Like, it'll get me out of a jam. But, I mean... Wave after, this at him. Yeah, but... I mean, <laughs> <laughs> But just any, any more, like, I... There's nothing that I have, not a single thing I own that's worth my life. Nothing. If, if someone comes at me with a gun and wants my razor, keys are in it, bro. You can have it. And I've had this discussion on my tool truck... Like, I'm not going to carry a gun on my tool truck. If someone wants my tool truck bad enough, I'll be like, all right, all I want is my water bottle and my laptop. You can have the rest. Like, keys are in it. I'm out. It's Have fun. It's all yours. Because that's what insurance is for. And, and I don't think I've ever met or been in contact with a person that isn't reasonable enough to just be like, okay, let me knock you in the head and take your shit, but not shoot me. I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's, maybe I will get hate mail or something. I, I just, I, I am a optimist in the human condition. I feel like it's not in your nature to harm another person under normal circumstances. Like it might be in your nature to want to harm me to get my shit. But if I give you my shit, you know, to me, I'm thinking I'm not, I'm going to be okay. But maybe maybe I'm wrong. I'm thinking that I could be completely off base on this. But I just I just view it as a it's like a parachute. If you have it and don't if you need it and don't have it, you'll never need it again. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I, I don't carry that often. I do down there in a situation like that. I just prescribe to the situation that's better to have it and not need it than need it and not have it. I'm sure there's all kind of arguments that. You know, anytime there's any confrontation, someone that's armed is more likely to get hurt. You hear all this, but once again, rather have it, not need it. The bears thing is a, is a real, you know, scenario in the back of my head. Probably not that likely, but I guess if you had a gun with you, you didn't, you don't have to get it out either. Right. So. That's correct. Okay. Well, so that, the, that's, that'd be a whole different discussion, but did you guys end up going to the prison? 
No, we didn't. Just, was it closed? It was open. They don't close till December. I uh, wanted to go, but we had all the meals planned out, and it's far enough away from the cabin that we just didn't. It just didn't work in. With Jeeps, you don't get to see as many attractions. But So, Brushy Mountain Prison. Have You, did, you went with us once, didn't you? Yeah, I went okay. with you. Okay. So, there is a prison that was built in the late 1800s out of wood. Uh, the inmates burnt it down. Go figure. They rebuilt it out of stone, and it was uh, later in its life it became a maximum security prison. But it was a, a work camp for the coal mine all the way through from the 1800s up into the 70s and early 80s. And uh, then I was actually reading on it today. I had heard a story probably folklore that there was like a, a hostage situation the mind that ended it but the internet says that a peaceful warden ended it or whatever but it became it was upgraded to a maximum security prison and they had some pretty famous uh prisoners james earl ray was in prison there escaped from there was caught because he's a northern white boy uh who couldn't figure out his way he he did like three or four circles out in the woods and they, the dogs finally found him because he couldn't he couldn't find his way out of the mountains. Uh, but James Earl Ray is the man who assassinated Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Okay. So he was he was in prison there. Uh, a couple other people that were famous that I didn't really know the whole story behind, but uh, it closed down in 2007, and they turned it into a tourist attraction. You can tour the prison. Uh, there's artifacts in there. There's a documentary you can watch. They do a Halloween thing every year that's, I guess, pretty cool. Never been, but they got a restaurant there. They distill their own moonshine there, which is actually really good. They have their own vodka that's, I've never tried it, but I've had, well, I guess I've had a Bloody Mary made with it. And it was pretty good because they have their own Bloody Mary mix. It's really, really good. I buy a bottle every time I'm down there. Um, and the last time I took the prison tour, they had ex inmates there that were like telling stories about being in prison there. Um, but it's a really, really cool tourist destination and it doesn't have to be off-road related because Windrock is the off-road park, but they also have one of the country's best downhill mountain bike courses there. Mm -hmm. Um, that people come for a destination. And if you've ever driven a mountain road, you know how curvy and hilly they are. And in Tennessee, um, I hate to say it, they run very well. They're a red state and they have money. And when a state has a surplus of money, their infrastructure is very nice. And the roads there are just absolutely pristine black asphalt and they're curvy and hilly. And there's tons and tons of car groups that go down there there's a there's a highway 51 i think that goes from uh is it lexington kentucky all the way to uh knoxville tennessee it's just just basically like kind of a mini route 66 and these car groups take their cars on these on this highway um i've seen corvette groups i've seen mustang groups that just drive right past the cabin with their cars uh, motorcycle, Harley, street bikes, all of it. Um, the player slingshots. And a lot of times we'll go to the prison for, for lunch to the barbecue joint and we'll see 50 to 100 cars from a car club there because they're out cruising the road. So um, that's a really, really cool attraction to go see for sure. Yeah, I, in researching some of the history of 
the Windrock area. They actually, all that kind of started as a coal mine, but they were, it was the working class people working the coal mine. Well, at some point, the coal mine company struck a deal with the government to get, to buy convict labor, it's called. Okay. So that's where the prison comes from. And there was a huge war down there. And the Cold Creek War. Yes. A lot of people died because the the people who used to work the coal mine got replaced by free labor from the prison. By free labor from the prison and they would kill wardens and they would try to burn the prison down and do all kinds of stuff. And I guess it was a it's a great big deal. I think something like that happened in like West Virginia too, over the coal mines and I don't know, but there's a uh where you if you're towing a trailer to Cody's cabin, there's a turnaround like a quarter, half a mile from mm-hmm. the cabin, and there's like a plaque there. There's an old railroad bridge that's not there anymore that was like a key moment in history or whatever that had to do with the Coal Creek Wars. And yeah, it, it's 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 pretty interesting. I mean, there's there's, there's deep deep history. There's in that area. there's history everywhere. Which this is a tangent, but um, a good customer of mine told me a story about gays. Um, his grandfather was a farmer. He's there are a whole lineage of farmers, but his grandfather was a farmer and this customer is, uh, he's in his sixties, but his grandfather farmed with horses and his father followed in his footsteps and he followed in his dad's footsteps. So he, his dad tells him a story. His grandfather was hauling a load of grain with a team of horses and he was crossing this railroad crossing in gaze and the grade school or whatever was right there at the railroad crossing. And his dad that my customer's dad was outside at recess playing out in the yard or whatever. And my customer's grandfather was crossing, getting ready to cross the railroad tracks to deliver grain to the elevator. There was a train coming. So the, the whistle or the bell or whatever was going off. And so grandfather stopped at the crossing and train came by, blew the whistle, spooked the horses. The horses jumped out in front of the train, killed all four horses and grandpa. And his dad witnessed this all happen. And the team of horses is buried at that railroad crossing. Really? And what, what was like, not appalling, but interesting and intriguing to me about this story is obviously super traumatic event for this, my customer's dad. I'm sure it, really shaped who he was as a man, but more like not, not like cold to the story, but what was interesting to me is that is a, uh, whatever, what the, what the term is for a, like not folklore, but like, uh, folk history or what, like it's not recorded in any history book. There's no book anywhere on record. Most likely that tells you that there's four horses buried at this railroad crossing because this happened. But, it's passed down generation to generation. Like how much history is there that is just going to be lost every single generation. I had a great aunt that could sit on her sofa and tell me all the way back to when my ancestors were slaves, who married, who had, who as kids and all the way down the line, cousins, uncles, brothers, sisters, everything. And she just knew it all. And no one ever bothered to write that down and we don't have that information anymore. I mean, it, like that type of thing is just, just wild as hell to me. Yeah. And you mentioned that 
I was listening to a podcast on the way down there and it's like a business podcast and they're saying, you know, you might as well live up your life because more than likely two generations from now won't even know your name. Yeah. I mean, I, I believe that. So, but back to Winrock, they, you know, they had the Cold Creek Wars, but before you, before that, even, you know, back in the Indian days, the Indians liked that area because of all the springs they felt like had healing qualities. Absolutely. And then the, the Europeans came in and explored the area. And actually there's a Elijah Walden, which I assume is where they get Walden's Ridge at. Okay. Was the first white man to come through there and they didn't really settle anything. But then somebody else came through and built a hotel and people from all over the United States would come down there to go to this hotel because they would give people rides from the hotel to the Springs. People thought the Springs had healing qualities and all that. And that was kind of the first, the first, you know, tourist stuff down there. And then most of the industry down there was the coal mine until World War II. They put a radar station on it. Yes, they put, well, the Cold War and, and all that. But I guess the, where the radar is, I was reading about this tonight, there was a whole Air Force base there. Yep. And they were, that was in the 50s or 60s 50s. or whatever. They said the, the radar tower took 6 million watts of power. They said if birds would fly by, they would kill them. That is awesome. And it was super secret. Like the locals didn't even know it was up there, which I don't know how you didn't see a giant tower on top of the mountain. Uh, I was just reading all this. They're saying they, they took a tram. They stayed at the bottom in Bryceville. It was like the Bryceville Air Force Base. Yeah, and there was a cable car that took them to the top. Yes, it said it took 30 minutes to go up, 30 minutes to go down. But if there's ice on the cables, it'd go down about 10 minutes. Ooh. Yeah. Yikes. But that was, you know, back in the 50s or 60s or whatever. They said in the 90s, all those guys that worked there got together to uh, have like a reunion. Yeah. They said they, they couldn't even find it where it was at. They said be, the government did such a good job. They said it just fell off the face of the earth. But that's since been found. And it's a destination on my ride command, the radar tower. You, it's, it's there now. It's super cool. All the, yeah, all the, I have been up there. It, you, you were there on that trip when we found mm-hmm. it. And uh, yeah, there's all these blown out concrete buildings and stuff. And then you can see there's these anchor points for the cable car set up. And I mean, most of the stuff's been scrapped out, like all the metal and everything, but all the concrete's still there. It's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, when you me. start looking at how big this tower was and you look at how far away like the anchors were, it's, it's, it's amazing. But, the scale of it. Yes. So they had that. And then down by Oak Ridge, that town was a secret town of 30,000 people that not many people knew about, which, you know, if you're down there, you know, getting a, you know, hiding down there would be pretty easy. It'd be kind of hard to hide 30,000 people, but they used to be called like, uh, like Clinton something, but that's where they started the Manhattan Project. And oh, I think I did read something about this. So they built a uh, like a reactor or whatever to like turn you you know uranium into plutonium, and it was this big secret thing down there. And they said actually, the government employed more people in that area than the coal mines. Right. 
And in the 80s or 90s, the government pulled almost everything out of there. And the only thing that was left was the, the off-roading is about the only industry. I don't even know if they coal mine up there anymore. There's, there's a very, very, very small amount of coal mining. And there's a very, very minute amount of natural gas and oil production. Um, nothing large scale, but there, it, you can, you mean you drive right past them on the trails, all the oil tanks that are still leased by the oil companies, but it's on Windrock property. And, uh, there's windmills up there, mm-hmm. um, that you can go see, but there's, there's really no industry. And, and, you know, as much as we kind of rag on, on the population and, you know, everything and the poverty down there is, is pretty rampant. There's no industry. Um, it's, it's very hard to make a living there unless you're in the entertainment or travel industry. Um, but there, there's not a lot of, there's no, I mean, there's no manufacturing there. The closest thing is Knoxville. There's plenty of stuff going on there, but I mean, if you're not coal mining or, or driving an oil rig or, you know, working at a local diner or little mechanic shop or something, there's really no way to make money there. Um, and it's kind of an interesting dynamic because, the, the way the tourism has, has driven the industry and the, and the property there. I mean, it, it's, it's almost, if you look at it on both sides, like if, if someone came to Effingham and started buying up all the property to sell tickets to the EPC or something, and hundreds of thousands of people a year started visiting Effingham, you know, it'd be kind of bittersweet. Like on one hand, your property value went up, but on the other hand, like, your son's not going to be able to buy a house next to you anymore because the $30,000 property next to you is now a hundred thousand dollars. So, um, like I said, for the most part, I've never met, I've never met a stranger down there. Every, everybody that I've ever talked to has just been the absolute nicest person and they're glad you're there, but I'm sure there's a population. There's a, there's a portion of the population down there that probably isn't too on board with it. But like I said, I haven't met them. So then one of my other notes was there's 300 miles of trails at Windrock. That seems light, but okay. And that may be within the property. Yeah, within the okay. property. Okay. Uh, when we went down there in March, we did 92 miles. This time, like say, we did about 70. And I, when I was talking earlier, this Jeep was really new to me. Oil light dinging. I kind of got over that, figured that was okay. And we were... I set my odometer because I like to know how many miles we go. Because, you know, that's something around here. You go to Badlands or something, you may drive 15 miles all day. Right. So we go out there, and I remember I was on like 52 or somewhere around 52 up, you know, toward like the Carryville Flats area. And I thought to myself, you know, this Jeep's dinging all the time. I had a weird clicking noise. I was just super nervous about it. And I thought to myself, at least it's not overheating. And then, and literally five minutes later, it'll start overheating. God, you should have just left your freaking mouth shut. I know. So I, uh, we pulled over and like we checked. We have twelve volt. We thought it was like maybe the fuse wasn't the fuse. Had twelve volts uh, to the plug to the fan, and the fan motor was so hot you couldn't touch it. Well, is it hot because it's bad? Is it hot because the Jeep's hot? So my, my uncle's like, all right, so you know, your bearings may have some mud in it and stuff because the fan wanted to turn but just wouldn't turn. So he's like, let's spray some uh, PB Blaster in it. So we spray PB Blaster in it. 
And I said, okay, they're, they're, we're only three miles from the trailhead. There's no sense in you guys ruining your day by following, coming back with me. I'm going to limp my Jeep back to the cabin. I'll get it fixed and just get a hold of you. Because actually, fun fact, AT&T has full-out signal in those hills. Yeah, Verizon, not so much. Verizon doesn't, but AT&T, I mean, I can watch Snapchats. I could, well, I could watch YouTube. It was cool. Good to go. So I said, I'll text you. They, some guys in the group had, had, you know, cell signal. So I said, I'll just keep, keep updated and I'll get with you. So we uh, get the Jeep cooled off, started up. And my uncle's like, honestly, like if you keep moving, it'll probably be fine. Turn your heater on. And I will tell you, when a Jeep's about 260 degrees, that heater is doing work. Which the heater in a Jeep works phenomenal anyway. Every JK I've ever had or driven in, no top middle of winter, you're just fine. Because that heater's on turbo mode, it'll keep you warm. So I can only imagine how hot it was in there. It was 80 degrees out. We had the heat full blast. Whoa. So we... uh, Take off down the trail, and, you know, Jeep was just under operating temp when we started. Take off down the trail, only get about 400, 500 yards of Jeep's overheating. Stop, hang out a little bit, sit there, let it cool. The cool part about Windrock is every person that comes by stops, make sure you're okay, see if you need anything. I mean, almost every person. Yeah. So we get it cooled off, and I, I figured out my ratio was 20 minutes of cooling and 10 minutes of driving. Ouch. So we drove another 400 feet and stopped again, 400 yards, I would say, stopped again. And I was like, okay, the next one was the waterfall on 52. I was like, I want to get to the waterfall. We can stay there extra long. Kids can play, whatever. Right. So got to the waterfall, let it cool. We were there probably half an hour, 45 minutes and uh, stopped and worked our way down and ended up getting to a hard road. And once we were on the hard road, we were good to go. Get enough airflow get enough driving. Air, yeah. yeah, enough airflow. I, I don't think the fan ever worked. I just think I'd always driven it on the road enough that it, I didn't notice it. Right. Uh, it, was, uh, it was funny, though, because the first time it stopped, you know, the first time we overheated after we sprayed PB Blaster in it, got there you pop the hood to let the heat out and there was just smoke rolling out of that oh, fan God. i was like oh pb blaster probably was not the best idea <laughs> i mean just you know the pb blaster smokes like when you spray it on like oh, a yeah. hot bolt or something oh yeah so i was pretty sure it was a fan and it, it was but we, it was me my wife and the two kids and we'd had a lot of quality family time and it family bonding the last two times we stopped Emma was like if you stop this jeep again i'm gonna be so mad yeah you know kids were kind of getting bored but we had to like make up like rocks or fossils and why it's big and a dinosaur so oh like, yeah How, why are we stopping well we got to go find some dinosaurs you know some some uh uh, fossils. So why, you know, pick up a rock? I think this is fall. Hey, that might be a fossil, you know? Yeah. And it was really dry down there, thankfully, because that place is a whole different animal wet. Oh yeah. And, but the mud holes are stinky. I mm-hmm. mean, stinky, stinky. And Wyatt had concluded that the, the, those holes were full of dinosaur poop. Okay. So okay. We, were, we were on a dinosaur adventure. So but, uh, I'm guessing, I don't remember, I'll have to look on my ride command, but there's a trail that I've only been on one time, and it was when we went down with uh, Brian Larson and Marty Jansen. There's a coal vein that's 
retired now and you drive right past it and there's four uh about 24 inch diameter ventilation shafts drilled into the side of the hill it's how you know you're getting close and then you get to this little overhang and there's about a five foot tall opening that's probably 20 foot wide that goes into this coal vein and we went in probably 200 yards down to this coal vein to where it got where i felt uncomfortable going any further and there's like different veins that shoot off to the side and then there was like a it looks like where the roof had come down which being a coal miner you probably know all about the geology going into this but i mean they the way they cut pillars into the into the 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 geology there but like the roof had come down and there was a probably a 30 inch gap that you could have climbed up and crawled through and then as far as you could see back past that 30 inch gap i show my little flashlight back there as far as you could see this giant room back there and i was i was super tempted to crawl through there and like it just go exploring and see like because obviously as far as we went is as far as everybody goes because like that's kind of where it gets sketchy at least to me it, it looks like this is one of those freaking horror movies where you, you get trapped in the cave and you're, you, you're there forever. But it would have been cool to see if there was any artifacts back in there. Cause there was, it was picked clean. I mean, there was like some trash and stuff in there and beer bottles and whatever, but you go back in there, probably, like I said, about 200 yards and you can barely see the light from the, from the outside right. coming back in. And it just gets a little spooky. I mean, you've been underground a lot with your mining stuff, but to the layperson who's never been underground or been to like the the Merrimack Caverns or whatever down in Missouri, I mean, it was pretty spooky. But I think you should find that trail and take Wyatt on that because he would probably just lose his shit because it was, I mean, as a 30-year-old just regular guy, I was just, like giddy like a schoolgirl, like this is cool as shit digging underground you know i mean it's it's every kid's fantasy like when they were growing up with with tonka toys in the in the sandbox or whatever to go underground but i don't know and i mean my experience with underground coal is 10 foot wide five foot tall six foot tall all the government approved safety, everything, you know, that, that would be a little different deal. You yeah. Know, this mine sketchy. had probably been shut down for 40 years. So yes. before OSHA was even a freaking thing. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. But it, I'd love to go back next time you guys go with, with side by sides. I think I'm going to have to go. Um, I, that, there's just so much to see there. You don't ever reach on Jeeps. I mean, you'd have to go there for a week to see everything on Jeeps, which we've been there. the train there's a train abandoned train you can see um but i mean we still find trails that we haven't done we've got our favorites now that, that we go kind of like our gotta do trails and some we really don't like to do but there's still stuff we haven't seen yeah and we were on trail 18 and before we left winrock so we'll have to go back to when we we're at koh we were like adjusting control arms on the razor and and we were tightening jam nuts. I was like, why do we need jam nuts on this? They're, they're not going to go anywhere. You know, the way it's a razor control arm, it's not going to twist and mm-hmm. loosen. And Cody's like, well, if you don't jam nut it, the threads will beat against each other, eventually pull the threads out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whatever, you know what I mean? Razor guys making stuff up. 
And I always thought jam nuts was just to keep it from getting out of adjustment. Wrong. So we were at the Winrock General Store, and my uncle was looking over the Jeep. He goes, hey, your jam nut on your control arm's loose. I said, that's ah, not a big deal, you know. He says, well, that'll pull your threads out. I said, ah, you know, I'll take care of it. Well, he goes, here, hands me a, a, a crescent wrench. We put a crescent wrench on it. The jam nut does not budge. Okay. Jam nut's probably eighth of an inch away from the control arm. Oh, And yes. it doesn't budge at all. So I said, ah, whatever. I'll deal with it later. I basically thought it was meth at this point. Mm-hmm. So we're on trail 18 toward the end of the second day. You know, we're 60 miles into this, this weekend. And we're going through some rock, put, you know, some, some rock area and stuff. And I just hear this, thump, 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 this, this sound we had not heard. And it was so distinctive and different that Laren even looked over. She goes, that's, that's a new sound. That's not a good sound. So I got out and wiggled the, the passenger tire, which is where I thought it, the passenger front tire and the axle moved. Uh-oh. And I, and I had had that axle out of there putting a truss on it before the trip with all oh, the bolts loose. I reached down there. I thought I felt the bolt, the nut was loose, not a problem. So we go another mile or two and the whole group, I, I finally messaged, we get to a flat spot and I said, Hey, I, I need to get out and tighten some bolts on my Jeep. Yep. So we get out and my uncle goes, why do you think you have a loose bolt? I said, well, my axle's moving. He said, show me. So I grab, you know, Jeeps in park grab my passenger front tire and push on it and roll it. And the control arm comes, the control arm and jam nut separate by like an inch. Uh Oh, and I'm like, Oh, that's a thing. And that's a problem. And I shouldn't have thought it, but maybe 20 minutes before that, I thought, what happens if I break a control arm? I was like, well, people run three links. Surely I can get out of here on three out of four links. Uh-huh. And I literally thought that 20 minutes later, control arm, the Broke. joints pulled out, the threads had pulled out. So I really wasn't freaking out because I really felt we could have got out of there on three links. Sure, yeah. Uh, not not maybe ideally, but you'd have got home. I would have. I, I decided, I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to winch. You know, anything hard, I'll just winch on. It's not that big a deal. So... He goes, well, why don't we just weld it? He said, I've got a welder. I said, yeah, when we get back to the cabin, we can weld it. You know, if your welder's back there. He goes, no, i got a welder with me. God dang it. And I was like, what now? He's like, yeah, you just hook, a ready it, up, welder. hook it up to batteries. Well, it's the pre-ready welder. Oh. So I forgot what it was called, but it was whoever ready welder bought the design from. Fair enough. So it, it is looks exactly like a ready welder. It just has a different name on it. Okay. So we pull that out. And he's like, be careful. It's, it's hot. Uh, whatever, because there's no voltage adjustment. You're just running straight two batteries. He's like, yep. it, it's hot. And I was like, oh, whatever, dude. And I almost melted through quarter-inch DOM control arms. That's like, good to know it, because it my, was hot. My my biggest concern of those is that you're going to get enough penetration. But oh, it sounds you're like... Get two, so you can run them off of one battery, and I would almost recommend that. Okay. So I welded the control arm to the jam nut and the jam nut to the, to the joint. Okay. And he was... I mean, he had the leather welding helmet, you know, he was all folded up, had gloves, it, the whole works. And what was weird about this on a, it was a wire feed welder, but on a wire feed. With flux core, right? Flux yeah. core with a little spool, you know, in the handle. But on your MIG welder in your shop, it's not hot till you pull the trigger. Well, this is always hot. 
So if, oh. you, if you bump the wire, like if you want to get close and feel where the wire's at, it's it's welding. So the only thing the trigger does it is, controls feed, the feed. is feed wire. Oh. And dude, that thing, Jason's got some video and stuff. The hole underneath of that Jeep was a spark ball. I mean, it, it had some juice. It got it. So that is something I got to thinking about. How much is a ready welder tool, man? Uh, well, Ballpark. we don't, we don't sell it, but if I just had to take a wild stab, they're probably six, 700 bucks. Okay. And I was thinking this is basically a glorified stick welder. It's basically stick welder leads with battery terminals on the end. I looked it up. There's a company that sells stick welder battery kits. Yep. And I was like, I'll just buy or make one of these. Well, Jason has a stick welder from like Harbor Freight in his mm-hmm. garage. He's like, let's just use that. So I'm going to make my own on the trail welding kit. And dude, under the right scenario, that might save your bacon big time. Oh, I can imagine. Absolutely. Yeah. So my uncle said he's never used it on <clears> his <throat> own stuff, but he saved several people's day. Oh, I'm sure. And, and that, that's like goes back to difference between a Jeep and a razor because you break something on a razor, just replace it is, is kind of the consensus but on a jeep you don't really have that option so the welder would probably come in super handy what day did you guys do 15 the second day which would be saturday we went before or after the control arm that was the first trail of the day so before the control okay i was gonna say there is no way i would have done 15 on a hurt control arm but so the the funniest part of this all this jeep i've struggled with with death wobble yep and I did notice how smooth the roads were in Tennessee. Yep. I mean, just glass. Yep. So the Jeep really doesn't get death wobble unless you hit a bump. So between Cody's cabin and the general store, my death wobble count was six. Okay. And it was so funny. Jason was in front of me and his Jeep really doesn't get death wobble, which is kind amazing. of amazing. Amazing figure. And we built that and my JK's all bolt on. But he hit a big rough patch in front of me, and he got death wobble. And I seen it. I said, look at Jason. Look at that idiot's got death wobble up there. Then I hit the same bump and got and death you got wobble. Death- <laughs> uh, Sucker. Yeah. Oh, shit. But uh, so you know where you're going down the highway, and you can go left to kind of keep going the general store. You can go right, and it brings you up in the mountains. Mm-hmm. I think we took that road back when Cody had his flat tire. Yep. So on day two, we came out there, and we took all the way from the peak where you cross – where the trail crosses that highway mm-hmm. all the way back to the cabin, not death wobble once. You think maybe Jason, the control Jason arm? thinks that control arm was pulled out the whole time. A contributing factor to your death wobble. Yes. I would, I would probably, I'd probably subscribe and, to and that. And even when you weren't getting death wobble, you could feel some play in the it. harmonics. Yep. It wanted it. It always was on the edge. And that's the funny thing about death wobble. Once you have it in a vehicle one time, you always just feel like you're just a moment away from just losing absolute control. Cause my WJ was like that. You could, and like, I would talk to, I'd be like, no bitch, nope. not today. Nope, nope, nope. And you, <laughs> you just knew like on certain bumps, like it's going to do it. It's going to do it. So like on my red Jeep, you could power through death wobble. It right. was a three, eight JK with a manual transmission. It would start death wobble and you just lay into the gas, which is opposite of what you naturally want to do. But you just lay into the gas and you could drive out of it. And I was talking to Randy about this. And Randy goes, well, this Jeep gets death wobble at 25 mile an hour. And Randy says, well, how fast do you have to go before you drive out of it? I said, Randy, it doesn't have the power. It doesn't have the power. It doesn't have the power. Because I tried to down at Windrock. It started death wobbling. I floored it. And I got up to like 
you know, 40. And I was just like, I got to stop. You need enough power to lift some weight off the front end is what you need. Yeah. And that Jeep doesn't do it with an automatic, but I had something happen to me. I've never had happen before. What's that? So, you know, Cody's cabin, you kind of drive up and it's got a switch back. Mm -hmm. So we drive up and then back in the driveway, I drove up backing up to the driveway to the cabin i got death wobble in reverse and what i got death wobble in reverse <laughs> wow yes that is that's impressive never had that happen before didn't even know that was possible i didn't even think it was a thing yes i'll be damned so anyway that uh, i actually had when you're talking about having a vehicle with death wobble so my dodge truck has a solid front axle yep and the first 20 minutes of the ride home every time we hit a bridge or a bump your butthole I, I had like ptsd oh yeah oh yeah and uh so anyway got any more facts about winrock that's about it we're, right? we're running mean, a little long that's yeah this why is I getting asked. long so we'll cut it off and okay well uh as usual thanks guys for tuning in if you have any feedback please get a hold of us ask ask short story long at gmail.com and again, please share this with somebody you think might enjoy it. Maybe not this one. It's a little long. It might be a little too much for the first one. But uh, yeah, if you've got anything you want to talk about, your experience in Vegas, or if you've been to Winrock or would like to go or like more information, feel free to reach out to us on Facebook or on email. So you guys have a good one, and we'll see you on the next one.